Thanks so much, Fred. Please open your Bibles to that passage Fred's just read. Keep them open there. I must say, the singing this morning was about as good as the weather is inside. I'm sure it'll be better next week, won't it? Let's get into the Bible this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that now you will help us by your Holy Spirit to understand what you're saying to us through this part of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, in his book, Lord of the Rings, of which I am a great fan, speaks from time to time about people falling into shadow, or a shadow falling across nations or people, by which he means that the shadow of evil falls over people and so consumes them that he that it destroys them. As the prophet Isaiah in ancient Israel, in Jerusalem, is looking to the northern neighbor, the northern kingdom of Israel, he sees the shadow falling in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's the shadow that's both moral and spiritual. And so what we find is that the rich are growing rich at the expense of the poor, where the rich flaunt their wealth, where the women walk down the street dripping their jewels and their designer clothes, where they extend their houses and turn houses into ostentatious mansions, where they throw lavish parties filled with excess. It's a place perhaps worst of all, where those who had been tasked with the moral and spiritual leadership, guardianship, protection for those who were weakest, that is, the spiritual and political leaders were themselves part of the corruption, part of the injustice that was going on. Religious leaders, instead of denouncing the inequality, and the lack of justice for those who were the weakest were often themselves participants in that very injustice, agents of inequality. And therefore they had nothing of any value to say to the people. And Isaiah looks north and sees the shadow falling on the land of Zebulun, of Naphtali. It was a spiritual and moral darkness that was falling and would one day consume them and indeed the southern kingdom as well. Those two things are linked. Spiritual darkness and moral darkness are linked In the Bible, one of the key measures of spiritual health is generosity towards the poor. The upholding of social and economic justice for the poor against the rich and powerful. The willingness to shoulder the social and economic cost of welcoming refugees. And Isaiah looks north and sees the shadow falling. 
Does that sound familiar? Perhaps you think I'm overstating things. Well, in that case, I suggest that you read the prophet Amos. He's a lot less diplomatic than I am. Or if you want a New Testament perspective, then get into the book of James, who is also far less diplomatic than I have been. Does it sound familiar, though? Well, it should, because Israel is us. What I mean by that is that if you like, Israel is God's case study in human experience. As we read through the story of Israel, played out in all kinds of different ways, we see a reflection of ourselves. We see a reflection of human history. We see a reflection of what it is for human beings to try to rule themselves and put things right and change things. And where it ends up is always towards the darkness that engulfs them. So when politicians give the impression, as they sometimes do, that the main game is economic growth, that is a manifestation of the darkness. When we sacrifice people, and often the weakest, the least able to defend themselves, on the altars of the gods of politics or economics, that's a manifestation of the darkness. When a thousand refugees since the beginning of this year have died trying to make the crossing across the Mediterranean, that's a manifestation of the darkness. And when the UNHCR tells us that 60 million people plus last year were dispossessed, displaced people, that's a manifestation of the darkness. When 25% of women in New South Wales will experience domestic violence. That's a manifestation of the darkness too. When governments and institutions of power give privilege to the rich and the powerful, that's a manifestation of the darkness. When the wealthiest and the most economically privileged societies on earth erect barriers to present, protect themselves, their wealth and their privilege, so that they won't have to shoulder the social and economic costs of those who are the most needy people on the planet, that is a manifestation of the darkness. And when Christians and when the church is complicit in this by upholding the economic and political orthodoxy, even when it goes against Scripture, then the darkness is very dark indeed. When we as God's people who are called, as we'll see next week, to be the light in the darkness ourselves, when we end up buying into and upholding the economic and social values of our communities when we should be speaking prophetically against them, that is the darkness. You see, Israel is us. All human experience is there. For Israel, the future is bleak. The shadow will grow. The darkness will come. And the time will come when the northern kingdom of Israel will cease to exist. The people will be deported. 
its religious and political institutions destroyed. People from other cultures and other faiths will be brought in. And it will be as if in the northern kingdom there'd never been an exodus, never been God's people there, that the God of Israel had never been worshipped. It will be almost completely wiped out. There's, um, there's a chilling moment in Robert Harris's book, The Fatherland, which some of you may have read. He writes an alternate history in which the Third Reich survives. And Hitler in 1964 is still alive, which is when it's set. And the Nazi state has sought to obliterate all evidence of the Holocaust. The memory of the people, the destruction of the instruments of death erased and trees planted over. And Detective Savior makes interesting name. <laughs> makes a journey to the east to the site of Auschwitz. And there's nothing there except trees and dirt. He finds one trace, one brick that speaks of the millions who have died, but otherwise it's gone. And that's what will happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now I want you to notice that in Matthew chapter 4, the Matthew picks up the words of Isaiah as Isaiah way back is looking at the northern kingdom. And as Isaiah reflects on the coming catastrophe in the north, which will eventually overwhelm the south, God gives him a message of hope. The quotations there in verse 15, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Do you see what God is saying? The light will dawn. The light will begin in the place where the darkness began. Do you see that? The light will come where the darkness began. And Matthew says, here it is. Here's the light dawning in the place where the darkness began. Coming from the north. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. That is, he left home. He went and lived in Capernaum, which will now be the base of his operations for so much of his ministry, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. The light will come from the place where the darkness began. And so Jesus comes preaching a message a message that many people thought they would never hear. It's there in verse 17. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The light has come. God's rescue is breaking in. Now, by the way, 
I think it's really important that we understand something at this point. Perhaps you have the impression that when Jesus appears on the scene, all of Israel is anticipating God doing something. They're just waiting for it, looking forward to it. That couldn't be further from the truth. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, Israel's hopes were pretty much shredded. It's true that some people continued to take seriously the promises in the Old Testament. They kept reading what we call the Old Testament. They kept reading those and they kept hanging on to them. But for many people, the expectation that there was a real possibility in their lifetime at least, that God would turn things around for Israel in the way that the Old Testament talks about it was simply ludicrous. Israel hadn't had a viable independent existence for hundreds of years and currently Rome ruled that part of the world and Rome clearly wasn't going anywhere soon. Rome was master of the world at that time. And the result, many people were accommodated to the prevailing social, economic and political realities and it affected their religious practice as well. So especially amongst some of the most influential groups in Israel, including those who were in the positions of highest religious power, those who dominated the temple, for example, they had accommodated. Others, like the Pharisees, had retreated in what I think could be described as hyper-religion. They were into tithing. They were into fasting. They were into praying in public. They were into displaying their religiosity for all to see. And it was very, very impressive. You looked at the Pharisees walking down the street and you thought, my, how do they do that? How religious. What a cost to them. But despite the fact that he made a great impression, it was often covering up their own hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, Jesus is absolutely scathing. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says. You know, you Pharisees, you tithe your herbs. You go out into the herb garden, you say, 10% for God. Isn't that impressive? I mean, it's down to the smallest detail. And what does Jesus say? You've neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You are hypocrites. All this points to the fact that when Jesus arrived on the scene, God's people were in effect back where Israel had been when Isaiah looked north and saw the shadow falling. Things haven't changed. The people at the time of Jesus are just like ancient Israel, the people living in the darkness in the land of the shadow of death. Jesus has already experienced that, hasn't he? When he's born, what happens? Herod wants to kill him. There's a reference here in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison. Why had John the Baptist been put in prison? Because he was God's prophet. And Herod wanted him extinguished. At the end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew, look at how Jesus 
attacks the temple institution, the most sacred institution in the nation. Because it's spiritually and morally bankrupt. And if you're still not convinced, then how do you explain the crucifixion? Given that, the people with the most power in the land, and especially the religious leaders, were the key figures in having Jesus put to death. When Jesus arrived in Israel, he arrived in a land of darkness, a land of the shadow of death. But here's the principle. The light dawns in the place where the darkness begins. So what's that got to do with us? Well, it has to do with us because Israel is us. The darkness that overtook Israel all those centuries before about which Isaiah wrote, the darkness, the moral and the spiritual darkness at the time of Jesus is precisely our darkness. Where Israel ends up shows the direction of all human effort, of all human destiny. It all tends towards and ultimately ends up in the darkness. And it's not just a problem for nations. It's not just about the big movements of history. It's about individuals. It's about you and me. It's about your life and mine. The darkness is in us. Profoundly. Deeply. Some of you may find yourself in a very dark place this morning. Emotionally. Relationally spiritually and all of us have an experience of the darkness because that's our world that's our environment that's us but here's the thing the light has come the light has dawned and the light breaks out where the darkness is in fact where the darkness begins And that light is Jesus. He is the light in the darkness. The darkness of humanity as a whole and in your darkness are mine. Towards the end of the first volume of the three volumes of Lord of the Rings, there are three volumes. Frodo is about to set off on his last journey. The final stage of his journey as he heads towards Mordor, the land of shadow, of darkness, to take the ring of power and destroy it by throwing it into Mount Doom. Before he leaves uh, the kingdom, the elven kingdom, Galadriel, the queen, gives him a file filled with starlight. If you're a Philistine, she's Kate Blanchett. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you, read the book. She gives him a file that's filled with starlight and she says, this will be a light to you when all other lights fail. And it's true. There are moments, there is one moment in particular where Frodo 
has entered the kingdom of darkness, and the darkness is so dark, it's almost palpable. You can touch it. He can see nothing. And the darkness is so oppressive, it feels as if it's weighing down on him. And he takes out the file, and there, glowing ever so dimly, is the light. Jesus is the light in the darkness. The light comes from where the darkness begins, and there is no darkness where Jesus is not the light. No darkness in terms of our experience, in terms of our hearts, in terms of the dark places of this world where Jesus is not the light in the darkness. And he is the light when all other lights are extinguished and all other hopes gone. But where does the darkness begin. See, Israel's darkness didn't actually begin with the events that Isaiah describes in the north. It didn't even begin just at the start of their history as God's people, as they've come out of Egypt, and they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and they worship the golden calf. It doesn't even begin in Exodus 32, although Exodus 32 sets the trajectory for the future for Israel in so many ways. The darkness for Israel began where it began, begins for all of us, and that's in the garden, in Genesis 3. And where has Jesus come from in the account that Matthew gives us? Where were we last week? We were in the wilderness. Jesus being tempted. It's the rerun of Genesis 3, but this time, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, he defeats Satan. And he rewrites the story. He has been back to where the darkness actually began and rewritten the story, and before he can come and be that light to bring to us, he must first go there. And having defeated Satan in the wilderness, he comes out and proclaims the kingdom And we're given a glimpse here of what that kingdom looks like, of what the light is for us. Look at the people Jesus calls to be with him. Verse 18, he calls Peter and Andrew and their fishermen, then James and John and their fishermen. They're not drawn from the religious elite. They're not the people with power. They're just people. It's a new beginning. These people will actually be part of the new leadership of God's people. And he invites them to join as he invites anyone to become part of this kingdom, of this new beginning for human beings, of the light that's breaking in. And we get a second glimpse as we see what Jesus does as he brings a message of hope 
And as he deals with those who are undergoing suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering, mental suffering. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill and various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. We get a glimpse here of the breaking in of the light. But it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. If that's the beginning, what will the fulfillment of all that be? What will it be when the kingdom eclipses all other kingdoms and sweeps them away? Jesus is the light in the darkness. And the light begins where the darkness comes from. It's the end of the period of preparation. John the Baptist's ministry is over. John is now in prison. And so as we've seen, Jesus leaves home, verse 12, sets up his center of operations and goes out and proclaims the kingdom of heaven. Repent, verse 17, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That word repent, you may be thinking, that's not a very happy word, is it? It's a bit like the weather. A kingdom of heaven, a glimpse of the future. Jesus is doing all these amazing things and he says, repent? Why would you want to stay in the darkness? Why would you want to embrace the darkness? Because repentance is about saying, I'm in the dark and I want to get out. Repentance is about saying, I realize that the light is found in Jesus and not in anything else or anyone else. That's repentance. And Jesus calls people to repent. If you want to stay in the darkness, then you stay in the darkness. But if you recognize that Jesus is the light, you'll repent, won't you? The light begins and breaks in where the darkness begins. Jesus has been to the darkest place and ultimately that will find its fulfillment on the cross. The light has dawned. I want to encourage you, wherever you are this morning, to embrace the light in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that Jesus is the light in the darkness. Father, we, may we be people who know that light that's in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.